First Kings 19, 1 through 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shephat from Abel Mahalah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Many, many years ago, back in the early 80s, when I went to seminary, I went to a program that required, uh, it was a Kind of a limited program required anyone that was a part of it to be a full-time student. So I couldn't go to it part-time. I uh, had to be a full-time student. 
And when I went, my, I was married. My daughter had been born while we were in college. And when we got to seminary, my son was born during that first year of seminary. And because of that, I not only was a full-time student, but I had to figure out a way to pay some bills. And so I got a job. And I got a job uh, driving truck. And so I drove truck two nights a week. I had a 13-hour about route each night. So two nights a week all night, I would drive that truck. And then a third night, I worked in a warehouse all day. And then just in my spare time, I decided to become a youth pastor of my church. And so I was part-time youth pastor in my church and had a growing youth group. Now, you listen to that story and you say, that's a pretty ridiculous list of responsibilities, and you're absolutely right. It was not only ridiculous, I wasn't keeping up with it. The way I decided to manage that schedule was I just, the two nights a week when I drove truck, I just decided not to sleep. So, two, so I only slept five nights a week while I was in seminary, and I just skipped those two nights. I thought I could do that. I thought I could handle that. The result of that was that I was, I was exhausted. I got sick a lot. Uh, I was pretty depressed. I really just had a hard time keeping going a lot of days because of that schedule. Um, I can remember many times when I'd be driving that truck, that long route all night. I actually drove the route all over Indiana. So many hours in the dark and lonely roads by myself, my mind would just run while I was in that truck. And many times I would think about the weight of all those responsibilities that felt like they were on my shoulders. Those responsibilities I felt like if I let off for a moment, it was all going to fall apart. Everything would come crashing down and everybody would be disappointed and hurt. My family would fall apart. Youth group would fall apart. I'd be thrown out of school. Everything would just crash if I didn't just keep up and keep doing it and keep doing it. So many times when I was driving that truck, my thoughts would run to pretty dark places. And I would often fantasize about, you know, the only way out of this would be to somehow escape it all, somehow to just get out completely. And I would think about if I just wrecked my truck, if I would just flip the truck over and roll it middle of the night while I'm driving, you know, maybe I'd get injured and go to the hospital, and then I'd have an excuse for not doing any of these things because I'd be in the hospital. Who could ask me to do anything? Or maybe I'd die, and I'd just escape. Many a night I would think it. Sometimes I would think about it so much that I would jerk the wheel a little just to see if I had the will to actually do it. Now, obviously, I never made that choice, never followed through on those dark thoughts. Um, and I'd say the main reason I never did um, was because I knew what selfish thoughts those were. Deep down, I really knew that that was a horrible, horrible thing to do to the people I loved. And that would have been a very selfish thing to do in any way, to just run and escape. So I thought about it, never acted on it. But when I came to 1 Kings chapter 19, and I saw this man, Elijah, this man who I think had good intentions, wanted to serve God, wanted to do good things. But somehow this man, Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, got to the point that he's sitting all by himself out in a desolate place in the desert, all alone under this little bush, this broom tree, and he's praying, God, just take my life. I've had enough. This is just too much. It's not hard for me to understand how a person could could pretty quickly get there if they left themselves or if circumstances were too heavy upon them. Um, before we really take a look at how Elijah got there, though, I want to kind of remind you about the setting, about the circumstances that he was in. Um, the background, you, if you remember, if you were here last week and remember Bob's sermon, tells you a lot of the background. Uh, 
Elijah's in Israel and King Ahab's king over Israel. He marries a princess from a foreign land, Jezebel, makes her his, um, his wife. And along with her comes her foreign gods. And he begins worshiping her gods, and Israel along with him then begins worshiping these foreign gods, these gods of Baal and Asherah. And they kind of adopted this synchronistic kind of religion where they, they worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they also threw in all these other gods. Kind of their view was, we'll do whatever works. And the gods of Baal were especially attractive because they were, they were largely fertility gods. They were gods that you worshipped and hoped that they would somehow bless your crops or give you children. Matter of fact, many of the gods of Baal were known as the gods of the clouds, the riders of the clouds. And they were the gods that controlled the storms that could, could destroy the crops, but they also controlled the rains that could nourish the crops. So you wanted their favor because then you could have good and safe crops. So they would just kind of pick and choose who they worshipped. At one point, God, uh, through his prophet Elijah, sent the message that he was no longer going to tolerate this. The time had come that this had to stop and this had to change. And so Elijah lets him know because of this choice of worshiping these false gods, God was going to send a drought on the land, a drought so severe that there wouldn't even be dew in the morning, completely dry it up. And so God does that. And Ahab begins going around the land and killing the prophets of God and would love to kill Elijah too if he could find him. And finally at some point Elijah comes forward after, a, after this drought has gone on for a while. He comes forward and Elijah says it's time now. It's time. I want to have a showdown with those false prophets of Baal and Asherah. 850 of them. It's time for the showdown. You remember the story last week if you were here Bob talked about that. A time where on one side you got Elijah and Yahweh. On the other side you have the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And they're going to see who really, whose God really is control of the elements of this world. Whose God really can send rain. And as you remember the story, Yahweh was the clear victor. Clearly, Yahweh won. They lost. And the prophets of Baal and Asherah were all put to death. Imagine Elijah at this point. The thing he's sacrificed for, the thing he's given everything for. This great moment. When that happened, all the people of Israel are there watching this event. Ahab's watching this event, this remarkable time where God has been shown to be the true God. He's the victor, and now things will be set right, right? Here's how that story ends in 1 Kings chapter 18. Meanwhile, the, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel, and Jezreel was where his palace was. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, I don't think the point of that was that Ahab was running ahead because this was a race, and let me see who can win. It was probably about a 17 to 20-mile run that he went on, and somehow the Spirit of God came upon him and allowed him to do that. I think probably Elijah was doing that to do what was common in that day. He was escorting Ahab back to his palace. He ran ahead of him, as was common. It was, it was a way of honoring Ahab, showing support for him. Because imagine Elijah now. The day has come. Finally, Ahab is going to be the king he should be. The people of Israel are going to worship the true God. God is going to bless Israel, and we're going to be the nation we're meant to be. The day has finally come. And then as the story goes on, we realize who the real power was behind the throne. It wasn't Ahab. Because Ahab gets back to the palace, he tells Jezebel what has happened. 
about all the prophets being put to death. And Jezebel sends this message to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And, and what's strange in this moment is, Jezebel says, Elijah, I'm going to put you to death. You're going to die just like all those prophets you put to death. Elijah's been living under this for a long time. They've wanted to kill him for a long time. Why is this, this time so hard for him to hear? Why this time does it just seem to suck the life out of him and he, he just has to get away? He runs in fear. For some reason, this time it seems different. It's too much for him. And again, I don't think it's hard to understand because I think any time that hope is right there, when the thing you've hoped for and, and the fulfillment is right in front of you, and then it's snatched away. That's different, isn't it? Those are the hardest moments. That's when despair and disappointment sometimes hits the hardest. A little over a week ago, I was sitting in an airport uh, waiting to catch a plane, and right in front of me where we were waiting was one of the running backs from the Cleveland Browns. Well, I grew up in Ohio, and so, you know, I was a Browns fan all those years growing up. So I got my mind going about thinking about the Brown, Cleveland Browns. If you ask any old Cleveland Browns fan about the fumble, if you just ask them about the fumble, they all will know what you mean immediately. Now the Browns, running backs, players may have fumbled the ball many times, but we all know what the fumble was. The fumble occurred in um, 1998, or 1988, I mean, when it was the AFC championship game. They were playing against the Denver Broncos and John Elway. And this was the game, if the Browns win it, they get to go to the Super Bowl. They just got to beat Elway and the Broncos. Wasn't looking so good. By halftime, it was 21 to 3. The Broncos were up. And then in the second half, Bernie Kosar, the quarterback of the Browns, comes out. Ernest Biner, the uh, running back, they come out four times. Kosar uh, throws for a touchdown. Ties up the game. In the middle of the fourth quarter, it's tied. And then John Elway did what he did so many times. He drove the ball right back down the field, and he scored another touchdown. He was up a touchdown. Six minutes left in the game. They're down by one touchdown. Super Bowl hanging in the balance. And so Bernie Kosar and Ernest Biner drive that ball back down the field, and the two of them are kind of the hero of the game, driving that ball back down the field. A minute and 12 left to go, eight yards from the goal line. Kozar hands off to Biner. Biner runs for it, and he's just about to cross the goal line, and you know what happened. He fumbled the ball. He's just about across, and he fumbles the ball. And the Broncos jump on it, and they win the, win the game, and Browns don't go to the Super Bowl. There are lots of balls fumbled by the Cleveland Browns, even that year. In fact, in that game, Ernest Biner was the leading rusher and receiver of the game. Had a great game. You think that's what he thought about after that fumble? You think he remembered all those yards he ran or all those catches he made? Thought about that fumble, that moment that cost the game. And all the fans thought about it. Miner remained player for the Browns the next year, but I tell you, even though he's one of their best players, he really didn't have much support. He was kind of a reminder of disappointment. Whenever you saw him, you thought about that play and that loss. You know, it kind of hung on him. I read an interview from him the other day, and he said it's still the thing he's most asked about is that one fumble. Because right there, with, with hope, right there, I'm just about to get what we long for, and now it's all gone. 
Imagine how hard that is of something as silly as a football game. For Elijah, what I hoped for, what I longed for, what I've been sacrificing for, what people I care about have died for, it's hanging right there. And suddenly, evil isn't defeated. Jezebel's still running things, and Jezebel's still going to promote false worship, and people of Israel are going to follow, and Ahab's going to follow, and what was this all about? Why do we do all this? Does it even matter? And Elijah does what I think a lot of us would do. He just wants to give up and get out. So Elijah runs as far away as he can run. He heads south. He runs about 100 miles south. He takes a servant with him. And they go kind of as far as he can, drops the servant off at the city, uh, the city south of Judah, I mean of Israel, and then he, then he takes off and he heads out into the desolate desert by himself. Goes another day's journey. Goes as far as he can, and finally in exhaustion, he lays down under this little scrubby tree, and he falls asleep. And that's where he tells God, just take my life. I can't take it anymore. In fact, he says, I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than them. And and most believe that he was talking about other leaders of Israel, other leaders and, and prophets that had gone before him. He's no better than them. They thought they were going to change things, and did anything really change? They thought they were going to fix things. Could they really do it? He's no better than them. And maybe even in his mind was especially that leader that was probably most remembered in Israel, that leader Moses. He's no better than him. You know, Moses led the people out of Egypt, but it was always one step forward and another step back. A step forward and another step back, wasn't it? Matter of fact, in Numbers chapter 11, you see Moses doing the same thing. Moses there is saying to God, God, if it's going to stay like this, if the people are going to keep being like this, God, please just take my life. Take me out of here. And Elijah says, I'm no better than him. I'm no better than them. God, I can't do this anymore. Just take me out of here. The Apostle James later will say that Elijah was a man just like us. We all kind of want superheroes, don't we? We want to find people that we can look at and say, now there, those people have the power, the gifts, the, something special, and that's why they're able to do it. And then we can dream about having those same things, that same kind of power. James tells us Elijah was no superhero. He was a man just like us did remarkable things, but not because he had some special skills or gifts or powers. Just like us. And I think this story reveals some of that. This is a man just like us. He gets tired. He gets exhausted. When he's faced with real disappointment, sometimes it's hard for him to go on. Sometimes he just wants to escape and get out. And this is a story about Elijah, and I think there's something to learn here for us about, from Elijah. But more than that, I think this is a story actually about God. And I want to kind of turn your attention to God in this story. What do we learn about God? How does he respond to this man who's had enough, can't go on, it's just too much? What does he do? Well, the first thing we're told is he sends a messenger, an angel. And this angel wakes him up, gives him food and water. Matter of fact, we're told he gets fresh bread, fresh baked. Um, gives him something to eat, something to drink. Let's him go back to sleep. Wakes him up again, feeds him again, gives him something else to drink. Cares for his real physical human needs. Takes care of those things. And tells him he's going to need this nourishment because there's a journey ahead. Forty days and forty nights he's going to make his way to Mount Horeb. Now forty days and forty nights in the mind of the average Jew would have meant something. 
because it was 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was on this mountain, a mountain we probably better know as Mount Sinai, another name for Mount Horeb, that, that he knows, I'm taking a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 journey to that mountain, the mountain that the Jews called the mountain of God. This is the mountain where God resides. This is the mountain where in the burning bush, God spoke to Moses and he called him to lead the people out of, out of Egypt. This is the mountain where God gave Moses the, the covenant and the Ten Commandments. This is, this is the mountain where God revealed his glory to Moses, that he got a glimpse of the glory of God. This is the mountain where God speaks, where you see God, where you hear from God, where God sends you out. Forty days and forty nights. You're, you say you're no better than your ancestors? Well, like your ancestor, come to this mountain. Make your way there. You don't have to be any better than your ancestors. Come to the mountain and meet with God. And so he does. He makes his way there. Um, we're told that he goes in a cave and he sleeps the night. And then in the morning, God comes to him and he asks this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? So why that question? Why ask him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I'm sure God knew what he was doing here. He'd been telling God, I want out. I want to get away. But Elijah, what are you doing here in this place right now? And Elijah's response is, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. What's interesting in in the answer that Elijah gives is he says, here's the predicament I'm in. I've been trying to do the right thing. Here's a predicament I'm in. Good things aren't happening, despite the fact I've been trying to do the right thing. He doesn't ask God for anything. He doesn't say he wants anything. But I'll bet you here and there that there's a demand for something. I've been doing the right thing. Good things aren't happening. That's not the way it's supposed to work. I've been doing the right thing. Good things are supposed to happen, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. If I do the right thing, God, you come through and bless. There'll be success. Things will go well and things will go my way. It's not the way it's happening. In a way, he's like Asaph in the 73rd Psalm. Saying, God, I look around me and it seems like evil keeps winning. I'm trying to do the right thing and evil seems to be getting the payoff. This isn't fair and this isn't right. I think in a way, he's, he's not directly complaining to God. But he's kind of saying it's not the way it should be, God. It needs to be different. In fact, I kind of demand it be different or I want out. If it can't be this way, take me out of here. And God's response to him then is this, this powerful wind, a wind so powerful that it shatters the rocks, an earthquake and a fire. And we're told God's not actually in those things. Now, obviously, God sent those things. God did those things. We're told he's, he's not present in them. That's not how he's going to reveal himself to Elijah. He shows his power, but then there's, we hear a a gentle whisper, Scripture says. That could just as easily be translated, then there was a silence. In that moment of quiet then, the great power, shattering of rocks, the great wind, the earthquake, the fire, now in complete silence, now God speaks to him again. And here's what God says. What are you doing here, Elijah? Same response again. 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. When I look through how God often deals with discouragement in his servants, um, people who are frustrated and, and don't understand what he's doing and want him to do differently, many times his response seems to be one of, of instead of just giving them the answer, it's, it's causing them to reflect. It's leaving them time to think about it, to realize what they really need and what they really want. What's Elijah asking for? God, you have to, I've done what I'm supposed to do. You have to do this. Elijah, what do you really want? Elijah, why are you really here? Are you here to be with me? This is the mountain of God. Do you know where you are? Maybe it ought to be asked this way. Elijah, why are you here in this place right now? Why here? Do you want to be with God? Do you want to know my ways? Do you want to see me? Do you want to understand me? Elijah, is that what you want? And Elijah comes back and says again, God, I want you to do what you're supposed to do. I want you to be the God I want you to be. I want you to be the God I expect you to be. I want you to work according to the formula that I've laid out. Elijah, why are you here in the mountain of God with God? And God reveals himself in this very intimate and personal and quiet way. He says, here I am, Elijah. What a chance to see God. What strikes me in this story and strikes me also in the story of Moses, if you remember back in Numbers chapter 11, when Moses also told God to take his life, it was a situation where Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, and again, they've seen these miracles of God again and again, and every time they hit a wall, they start whining and complaining and saying, wish we could go back to Egypt again. Well, in Numbers 11, it's another one of those places where they're, God has provided manna for them. They thought they were going to starve. God's provided manna. Everything's going to be okay. And now they're sick to death of the manna, and they're telling how I wish we could go back to Egypt because the food was a whole lot better back there. And Moses finally is just turning to God and saying, I've had enough. No matter what I do, it's not enough. Lift this burden off of me. And God, if I have to carry this burden again, just take my life. I'd rather be gone than have to live under this all the time. What's interesting to me in that story is, again, Moses who has seen God act again and again and again. The children of Israel have seen God act again and again and again on their behalf, graciously stepping in for them. None of them really turn to this good and gracious God and say, God, please help. They say, God, this is too much. But they never say, God, please help. It strikes me the same thing with Elijah here. The God who has shown his power, the God who has come through for him, the God who has answered prayer and done remarkable things. It's too much. And all Elijah is saying, here's what you're supposed to do. Not God, where are you? And God, would you please help me? Instead of a request, it's this is the way it's supposed to be. I think it's where we all kind of end up turning a lot of times. We want a formula that we kind of control. If I do the right thing, then God has to do. And God wants us to be people who come to him and, and say, actually trust me, follow me, lean on me, depend upon me. Okay, tell me what to do, and then if I do the right thing, then you have to do. See me, know me, follow me. Trust me. Okay, so what am I supposed to do so that you will then act? And what strikes me in both of these stories is 
despite the fact that they don't ask, despite the fact that they kind of stay where they are in some ways, God actually still steps in and takes care of them again. He, he's pretty understanding about where they are. He steps in for Moses and he says, Moses, I'll raise up elders and the Spirit of God will come upon them and they will take some of the burden of leadership off of you and lead with you. And Moses, I will provide meat to feed the people. He says, I'll do that. Steps in. Look at Elijah. Elijah keeps saying, it's not the way it should be. And God steps in. And God reveals to him, you know, Mo I mean, Elijah, I'm going to raise up people who are going to be prophets to carry on this message even beyond you and with you. That I'm going to raise up people who will fight evil and will defeat um, the gods of Baal and the followers of Baal. So Moses, I've already set a group of people there who are my followers who have not bowed to Baal. Or the, that remnant that I'm going to raise up and continue on with, they're already in place. I'm already doing my work. And, you know, Elijah at that moment, I think he, he can't look back and find hope. And a lot of times that's, that's how we find hope, isn't it? We look back and we see what's happened, what God has done, and that gives us then faith for the future. Because you've done it then, I believe you could do it now, again and again. But Elijah's at a place he can't do that. He can't look back and find what he needs to have hope for the future. And I love how God steps in. He steps in and cares for his physical needs. He's he present with him. He reveals himself and helps um, Elijah to understand who he is. And then he even peels back a little bit of the future. And he reveals to Elijah the things he's going to do and his plan and how he's going to work things out. He gives Elijah everything he needs to continue on and to have hope and to continue to serve. He takes some off. He gives him hope. He gives him the energy he needs so that he can keep on. Elijah doesn't have to be more than a man just like us. Elijah just has to be someone who trusts his God and follows after him. That's all God's asking of him. One of the things I love in this story is he doesn't just pat Elijah on the head and say, oh, I get it. You can't handle it. Done with you. We're going to move on. He also doesn't just wag a finger at him and say, suck it up and get on with it. This is what you're supposed to do. He, he honors him by graciously still using him. And Elijah, you kind of get the feeling Elijah never really fully gets it, but he has what he needs to go on. And he goes on. He continues to serve. Maybe he continued to grow and to learn and to understand the message that's been given to him, just like the rest of us. He gives him food, he gives him water, he gives him an encounter with God, a new understanding of who God is. He shows him the future, he gives him support and people to lean on and people who will go ahead of him and continue to carry on the message. God gives him everything he needs. The threat of Jezebel and the, and the danger of evil is still right there. It hasn't gone away. But what God did is what he so often does is he takes that threat that all we can see and we're so focused on, all we can see is ourselves and that threat, and he sits it back in a context that includes him and includes that larger story. Same threat, but it's different now, isn't it? Because now that threat sits in this context of God and what he's doing and what he has done and what he will do. It's different now. It doesn't require my full focus anymore because I'm not alone as I'm in it. So what do we do with this story? Well, I want to leave you with four points of application. And these are pretty simple things. First one I've been saying again and again. I want to remind you that God uses people just like us. You really don't have to be a superhero. 
You really don't have to be someone who has these remarkable talents and gifts and superpowers. You don't have to be. In fact, the story of Scripture is again and again, God loves to use people just like us. We love to start turning them back into superheroes. But God loves to use people just like us to accomplish his work because it's in that way that we most see that it was God who did it. And they get to understand it was God who did it. James chapter 5, when, when James makes that statement that Elijah was a man just like us, what he's saying there is he's just finished telling the, the people he's written to that when you're sick or when you're having troubles or when you're struggling with sin, pray. Ask the elders to pray for you. Seek out others to pray for you. Pray. And then he says, look at Elijah. Elijah stopped the rains. And later, Elijah called the rains back down. How did Elijah do that? A man just like you. He prayed. The power that he used to accomplish that is just as available to you as it was to him. Because the power resides in God, not in Elijah. He's saying, remember that. Don't turn him into something more than he was. Remember, he's just like you. And the God he prayed to is still the God that you pray to. And he's the one you need to turn to when you need help. I'm not trying to be an Elijah. Second, um, I don't think this passage is meant to be a manual on dealing with depression and despair, so I'm not trying to give it to you and say, here's what you do every time you're depressed. But I think there are some things in there you can look at, some, some suggestions that might be helpful. Elijah did, I think, what a lot of us do when we're struggling, feeling hopeless and depressed and in despair. He, he tries to kind of suck it up and handle it, and when that's not enough, he tries to get out. He runs. It's kind of an all or nothing. Either I can handle it or I've got to get out. It's the place I was when I was driving that truck. It was either I've got to be enough and it's all going to fall apart if I'm not enough, or i just got to get out of here completely. It's the only other option. It's all or nothing. And we get that place pretty easily when we start feeling hopeless, don't we? It, because I'm not enough, what's the other answer? Run. Well, the story of Elijah, I think, reminds a couple of things that are good for all of us to remember. One is we're not helpless. Running to the place of saying that we are totally helpless, we can't do anything, it's just not true. We're not helpless. God gives us responsibilities. He asks us to do things. He gives us a meaningful and important things that we can do and accomplish. We're created in his image and we are given good things to do. And we can do those things. So this idea that I can do nothing, I want to say no, it's not true. You have something to contribute and what you contribute matters. But the flip side of that is not, um, I can always handle it. I can do whatever I need to do. If the, if the problem's in front of me, I need to be enough to handle it. We're not helpless, but we are limited. We're, we're not God. I'm not all-powerful. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-wise. I'm not ever-present. I'm not God. Reflection of God, but I'm not God. I was created to be in community. We're created to be with one another. I'm not created to carry the burdens of this life by myself. Scripture, New Testament, a hundred times uses that phrase, one another, one another, one another. And most of those times, he's speaking to the church about how we're to intervene to support, care for, and help carry the burden with one another. We are not meant to do it alone. We have to ask for help. So when we want to say it's all or nothing, nothing's not a good answer, but all's not the right answer either. We don't have to be all. We are meant to do it together. But even more in that, we were created to be beings who are dependent upon our God and live in submission to him. We were never meant 
meant to live independent of him. So again, when I have to be all, I'm missing the point. And when I hit that place where I say, I can't do it, I don't have enough, good. You probably don't, and you're not meant to. Seek help, seek support. It doesn't mean I go tell someone, now you have to do it. It means I ask, I remember that you're there with me. I have something to contribute. I can give, I can do, but I don't have to do it by myself. And ultimately, all of us need God to accomplish anything that matters. So, in the face of depression, despair, a couple of things I would say. One is face my physical and emotional limits. Take care of your body. We sometimes think that's not the spiritual answer. Take medications or get rest or nutrition or exercise. Well, what's the spiritual answer? People come to me with counseling. Sometimes I say, go see a doctor. Well, that's not the spiritual answer. Yes, it is. Yes, God designed you. God made you this physical human person you are. And there are certain things about that design that you have to respect and honor. So yeah, sometimes consider the physical. It's part of it. It's part of even submitting to God. Um, remember you have something good to contribute. You can do. This idea that I'm going to flee and suddenly everything's going to get better. It's tempting, isn't it? If life feels overwhelming, the answer is get away from everything. You know what always happens when people are struggling with depression and hopelessness and they try and escape? The depression almost always increases. Almost always gets worse. I think part of it is because we're, we're faced with the, the reality, I can't flee the effects of sin. I can't do it. There's no way out. There's no way I can find out of it. Wherever I go, I'm still there for one thing. In the world I'm in, it, it never disappears. I can't do it. What I need to do instead is to realize I have something good that I can give, but also ask. Do what Elijah had a hard time doing. Do what Moses had a hard time doing. Ask. Stop and look around you and say, God, I need help. How do you support me? How do you help me? God, how do you want to bring others into my life to help me? Where do I look to get help? A third thing I want to say, uh, application, a simple thing. The story reminds us that God cares for us when we are overwhelmed. But I really want to say that strongly. I think sometimes we think that God, you know, you're just... You're just waiting for me to do it right, and you're just going to keep loading on until I get it right. What I, what I see in this story is God cares for us even sometimes when we don't fully get it. God cares for us even when we're struggling to get it. Sometimes God still uses us, still takes care of us, still sends us on. Even though we're just not the people we wish we were and want to be, God still cares even when we're overwhelmed. He's a God who will provide support, encourage because he wants us to succeed. He wants to give us all we need to do that. Finally, last application is, um, Elijah reminds me that God doesn't always just appear in the dramatic and the big and the powerful. Sometimes. Sometimes God appears that way. Sometimes it's the way he works, and I think it's what Elijah was working, looking for. The big and dramatic is always supposed to have this end. This is what it looks like. Well, God does work in those things. God sometimes also works in the very quiet, in the patient, in the slow, in the ordinary. I talk with people sometime about church, and one of the things I'll sometimes hear is about, oh, the church seems dead. Well, and sometimes we are dead, so I want to ignore that completely. Sometimes we, we're not lively the way we should be. The life of God is not flowing through us as it should. But sometimes what they mean by dead is, there needs to be something more emotionally dramatic going on. 
needs to be something more exciting going on, and, and that's what it means to be alive. And to that I often want to say, well, I think those are good sometimes. Those are wonderful sometimes. But if, if that's the only place you can see God acting, then you're not looking very closely. Because God acts in the ordinary all the time. God acts in the quiet and sometimes the monotonous. God is still there and he's still present and he's still at work. I think when those times we have to most look because it's not where we always expect to find them. The big and the dramatic, it's not hard to see, is it? But where are you really going to get to know God? It's when even in the ordinary and the quiet and the simple, when you're waiting, you still look for him, you still pay attention to him, you still listen for his voice. Because God's there too. God doesn't work at the pace we do, always in the way we do. God sees the whole story. We don't. And sometimes in those quiet moments, stop, listen, pray, because God's still there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for stories like the story of Elijah. Stories remind us that you can use people just like us. Father, the, the story of Elijah is a, is a remarkable one. The remarkable things you accomplished through him. Father, I pray you'd help us to remember often that you accomplished those things, and you still are. You're still the same God. You're still at work in your people, and you're still changing this world, leading us to that glorious end where you will set all things right. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. Thank you, Father, that even in our immaturity and our frailty and our humanness, Father, that you still honor and choose to use us. We thank you. In your blessed name, amen.